0: Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. As long as there have been films, there have been musicians crossing over into them. While some ease the transition to stardom by appearing in musicals or otherwise playing to their strengths, there are plenty who can light up a film in a small part, bringing a unique voice and rhythm to every syllable. In this episode, I was joined by...
1: Eric Hines, a curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image and film comment columnist.
0: And...
2: Shawnee Enelow, author of Method Acting and Its Discontents, um, and assistant professor at
0: Fordham University. To discuss the weird, wonderful, and captivating things musicians bring to film. Here's our conversation. Thank you both for coming. And today we're going to be talking about... And Evergreen inspired by the Grace Jones bloodlight and Bammy we 're going to be talking about musical performers in films sometimes they sing sometimes they don't are they always just themselves we'll find out Eric, who are you talking about
1: <laughs> uh, what what, oh, what am I what am I not talking about I think mm-hmm. you're gonna have to tell me when to stop um, <laughs> uh, I think I want to talk a little bit about in terms of figures I want to talk about Tom Waits a bit mm-hmm. I want to talk about Down by Law in particular, as well as Shortcuts. I also want to talk about some of the sort of less impressive performances because I'm fascinated by them, such as Neil Diamond, the jazz singer, and some of the Elvis Presley films.
0: You're not going to talk about uh, Tom Waits and Mystery Men?
1: I'm happy to talk about Tom Waits and Mystery (laughs) Men a Ma- maker of non-lethal weapons
0: that's right <laughs> <laughs> that movie it's weird it's weird to watch that movie now um
1: yeah it's it's not it's as 90s as something could possibly get
0: i know and it's it's weird because having lived through that time you don't you don't think of it and then you watch it and you're like oh yeah that's what that's, what, that's basically what it <laughs> there was, was like. a moment
1: where these things all happened in the same place
0: <laughs> yeah okay yeah
1: <laughs> ben stiller and janine garofalo and tom waits and oh, yeah. paul rubens and Hank Azaria, Hank Azaria. all
0: the great guys. Let's start off by talking about Tom Waits, though. What sure. is it? What is it about Tom Waits? Because obviously he's a singer who has a very unique style of singing. Maybe some might say a voice he puts on.
1: Well, that's <laughs> well, that's kind of what I I'm interested in. Is yes. I mean, I think there's a whole thesis we could be working through in terms of all of this that I'm, I want to get into, but one of the things in thinking about who actually forges a career as an actor who's originally a singer or performer um, are the people who actually, I think, play characters in their music. Mm -hmm. It lends itself quite well. And I think that Tom Waits has had a career, whether or not, and he's spoken on the record of kind of not taking it seriously, but that's just kind of his way. Because I think anybody who's in that many films over that period of time has invested himself in being an actor in some way um but he is uh, he's somebody who I think for his entire career as a musician is playing characters he's playing roles each song is basically you know he rather than being a confessional you know sincere uh, singer he's somebody who's yeah he's putting on a voice he's putting on an affect and I think that lends itself well to character work mm-hmm. um, he hasn't had too many leading roles and I think that's probably indicative of um, it's hard to play a, a You know, a character with some Elan, some sort of, you know, uh, spin. If you're going to be 90 in every scene, that's a lot harder to do. You have to be more recessive, I think, often for those characters. Um, But I I think Down by Law is probably the performance of his I like the most because I do think there is real depth to that person. Yes, he's playing a DJ or, you know, sort of like a, a variation on a musician. He's not playing somebody so far from himself, but there is also kind of a. Um, a defeatism to that performance that I really like. There's a sort of uh, bruised masculinity that he's carrying the entire time that I think all of the leads in Down by Law carry – It's also a fascinating film because it is, there are three leads and two of them are non professional uh, musicians. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you've got Roberto Benigni like filling up all this space because, you know, if you're going to have one actor, I guess you're going to have like an actor who's like turns it up to to 13 to fill that space. But it's interesting how he's outnumbered by two, like, you know, by John Lurie and Tom Waits. Um, And that coming from Jim Jarmusch, who also comes from a musical background as well as a directing, filmmaking background, there's something about that that's really. Evocative because I don't think that happens very often.
0: I mean, is there something to be said about rhythm in the films of Jim Jarmusch, but particularly totally. that one? Yeah,
1: totally, totally. <laughs> but I, I think he also, and this is like related to just saying, in terms of him putting on, uh, he's he's a, he, as a musician, he's a, he plays characters, is that he uses his voice as an instrument, mm. and I think that Lurie does the same thing. And whether or not they were trained to do that as as actors, and honestly, like because I I, I tend to be so frustrated by american acting that does not emphasize voice i think there is something to the sense of casting people like that who they may not bring a whole lot in terms of acting experience they actually bring a lot to playing the instrument of their voice in film and i think mm-hmm. that works quite well with those two people who worked with jim josh in other films too right. but Rhea rhythm i think is a is is absolutely an aspect of that yeah
2: yeah, it's interesting to hear you juxtapose, you know, the, the model of the, you know, the confessional sincere singer to the, you know, singer as character actor, um, because, you know, it strikes me that dabbling in my youth with band playing, right? Even, you know, the, the, the confessional voice that we associate with sincerity is just as much of a performance, of right? Totally. Of and, <laughs> and, you know, so that actually, I think, becomes an interesting element when you are casting singers who are actually known for that kind Kind of um you know supposed authenticity um like the the person i was going to talk about mark kozalek uh-huh. um who's had a very strange he's had a very strange acting career where often he is cast seemingly to provide that kind of musical authenticity Um, but what ends up happening is that he you know it just sort of throws into relief how much his confessional performance is a persona itself Uh Uh, so instead of instead of looking like um, oh there's this there's this true musician here his often in films, he looks like, oh, there's a guy doing a really good job of, of acting a musician, yeah. right? It, like it becomes – it actually sort of seems to highlight this kind of performance um, sure. or the theatricality of his musical persona. But, but, so I, but I wonder about yeah.
1: diversity within that because I, I agree with you. It's always a performance in that level. But you're if you're playing one version of yourself as a musician all the time and that conveys to a, 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 a film performance – Can there then be? Is is there? Can he play a different type of like? You know what I mean? Is there a limitation in terms of? Yes, it's a. It's it's translated to the screen and it's a character. But is there another character in the arsenal, or is it always that character?
2: Right. Well, I guess I would argue that Tom Waits is kind of always the character of Tom Waits too. Uh Even Uh though he does have, you know, there's a flexibility in his among his albums between characters I guess but it's all within a very specific genre right that he's really perfected Mm -hmm. um and so I guess that kind of like genre musician tends I'm not sure I would I'm not sure I would argue that Tom Waits is a more flexible actor I -hmm. would just argue that his theatricality is a little more on the surface and Mm -hmm. a little more legible to an audience than someone like Mark Kozlik who people accept as authentic in a different kind of way
1: right but Um, why do you think that is why do they accept it as authentic
2: I mean, I think it's because of the history of of what sounds like truth to Americans, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it, it has to do with, I would say, you know, a, a, a long tale of, you know, method acting and its relationship to confessional poetry in the mid-century, mm-hmm. right? And like a certain voice started to sound like the truth mm-hmm. um, to mm-hmm. us. And I think that that's still the case, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even as we become, you know, I would say more aware of of its ultimate theatricality.
1: Which makes me So, the, so I had a, from that, I have a question, which I think probably leads into yours, but I don't know if you're ready to talk about it. Um, <laughs> because because Bowie fascinates me obviously. in this. Because he's obviously somebody who was a role player as musician. But I think that the translation into like a full-bodied acting career is kind of uneasy, which is fascinating. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. No, I mean, and it, I feel like out of anyone we're talking about today, Bowie is the person who... Had the most success, let's say the most uh variety of roles, and obviously he's he's someone who is not a professional actor, but you know he studied mime and you know, and sort of had all these trappings of like art school things that he learned in art school a uh, very nice uh publicly li- back when that was an option for you know middle class to poor people in England, and you definitely see it in the man who fell to earth. You know, Nicholas Rogue saw Bowie in this documentary on the BBC called Cracked Actor, which was towards the end of his Ziggy Stardust era and, uh, yeah, and into like the um, Young Americans Plastic Soul stuff. And he's like drinking milk out of a carton, eating red peppers, and cocaine. And those are the only three things that he's ingesting. He looks horrible. He is not making sense. Most of the time he's just in the back of a black limo, like ah, in the middle of the New Mexico desert. And where does this film take place? Mostly a lot of it takes place in New Mexico. A lot of it is taking place in the back of a limousine and being trapped by, uh, you know, forces outside of himself, but also by wealth. And um, of course, Man Who Fell to Earth about an alien who comes to our water planet looking for a way to save his home world and then gets stuck by corporate-slash-governmental forces. Um, I feel like
1: any time that film is described plot-wise, it doesn't... It's like, that's actually barely the movie at all. You never actually see these things happen. But plot-wise, sure, I guess that's happening. You
0: do sort of see. Because it's like, who who do any of these, like evil figures work for I mean because again it's like in this very typical uh Nick Rogue style where it's very um you know the the editing is very quick and elliptical and there are lots of things like there's just so many moments where someone else's emotional exposition happens while you're looking at Bowie in the back of a limo just sort of you know there There's so many interesting things going on in that movie, and every time I watch it, I notice something totally new and totally fascinating, and it makes me love it even more, and especially you know not just for the way that it interfaces with Bowie's own biography and things that were going on during that time because if he was just himself, he would not have been able to do that movie like he clearly cleaned himself up and got to a point where he could perform a version of himself as this sad alien and obviously like the part where he goes to church with mary lou and they sing jerusalem and he doesn't know how to sing or make it seem like he knows how to sing so he's just sort of like drawing in the air it's like one of the i love that part so much it's so good (laughs) um and he's
1: representational he's playing a representation which is exactly exactly you could easily see that that is being He's not doing anything with playing Bowie, but actually he's playing a representation, which is actually complicated. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Or even just like in small interactions towards the beginning where it's like he doesn't know when to hand over, hand someone money or hand over an envelope. Like these little human interactions are totally foreign to him. And he's really nervous for being found out, not because he's unnerved by the interactions, because clearly wherever he comes from. Not unlike her own, right.
2: And part of the way that works, of course, is that we, you know, the star text of Bowie uh, precedes yes. and exceeds the film, right. Mm-hmm. So we're all kind of in on the joke, yeah, 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 me, of of Bowie's persona as a space alien, right? right. But also of that, you know, being framed for us in a in a kind of campy way, yeah. Um, so that so instead of him trying to sell, uh, you know, a realist portrayal of a of a um visitor from another planet, mm-hmm. right, what he has to do is, you know, sell Bowie as as Space Alien. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> which, is
0: very, which is very different. Yeah. And I also, the the last thing I will say about his performance is that, you know, the the music in the film is actually quite bad. <laughs> there are other sort of like instrumental things that are very of the time and obviously Bowie was prepared to do the music and then Rogue basically pulled back and said no. And I've I've always felt like the reason why he said no is not just because it's sort of a joke but because it would ultimately overwhelm the image. Because if you put something like subterraneans over a sad, like images of, uh, you know, Thomas Jerome Newton looking sad or like pulling gin, it's too sad. It just like it may become something totally beyond itself. Again, this trapped nature of this character was so close to his own experiences. That's an interesting question, right? How does the...
2: Musicians own music, figure or not figure in right. the film. Right, right. Um, you know, sometimes, of course, they're playing musicians who are then performing someone else's music. Sometimes their music is included as a kind of um, as a kind of like wink to the audience, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know that you know who this is, and then sometimes it's eschewed completely, right. uh, which is which is which is an interesting question, right? And I think I think speaks to the extent to which the the charisma of the performer um, is being linked to their artistic output or used for other purposes, right? Mm-hmm. like sometimes you know a musical I think I mean I think what's really I think, in thinking about this, what attracts so many directors to musicians as actors um, is the fact that musicians have to have a lot of charisma, have to have exactly. a lot of stage presence, yeah. and typically are not trained actors. And so there's this combination of charisma and unstudiedness that you know can be used to really interesting ends. Also, a built-in
0: audience who will come to and see this And a built-in movie. audience, <laughs>
2: yes, and a built-in audience. I mean, so the other the other performance that I that I really wanted to talk about is Jennifer. Lopez and Selena yes. um because you know that that film is um you know wouldn't work at all were Jennifer Lopez not extremely charismatic and also a pretty, shall we say, like amateurish actor, at least at mm-hmm. that point in her career. Um, because what that what that amateurishness does um, is it it you know it creates this kind of winning vulnerability, you know, that also was part of Selena's mm-hmm. for you know persona as like this youthful kind of ingenue star, um, that that actually becomes more convincing than a more, say, traditionally competent person. Performance, I think, would have been in that you know very clearly by the books melodrama um, mm-hmm. of that movie, right? Which could, I think, just just um, fall flat. And instead, it actually becomes this kind of uh, there, there's there's a way in which its soap operanness like transcends the genre mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's participating because it is so bald about it. Yeah. So, yeah, so no, I think and, that's and, a, and an I, interesting I, example.
0: Yeah. No, and the way in which Edward James almost, who is a very accomplished. American actor and also Lupe Yes. the way like the power that they contain again is sort of because those were two major poles in her life whether you believe the official Selena story or maybe uh you adhere to one of the um conspiracies which are very deftly laid out in intellectuals talk about Selena (laughs) a great documentary uh that was actually part of um tell me the tell me series nelly killian did and i'm sad that we didn't actually include it in the podcast we did because that movie is so good and it mm. gets to the heart of like why selena is great mm-hmm. but anyway mm-hmm. yes the, the the official story of course uh the movie that was made that you know that you still do you can sort of read between the lines and be like yeah okay her dad really was kind of like calling the shots in a way that was not cool and weird mm-hmm. and like what was she going to do? You like, you really mm-hmm. don't know what she would have if had she lived, what she was going to do next. And mm-hmm. like, it's more than just like a, a tragic uh, musical biopic.
2: Maybe I'm treading in too much ground that this documentary already covered. But it's so crazy that they made this movie two years after Selena died. Yeah. Um, and, and And so there's this kind of Lopez isn't she's not performing a character of Selena no. so much as becoming a surrogate for Selena, right? And that is actually really powerful in those, in those, um, you know, uh, concert scenes where she's Mm -hmm. actually performing, you actually see, you know, Jennifer Lopez stepping into Selena's shoes Mm -hmm. in this, uh, you know, kind of like, spiritually satisfying, (laughs) although also really, you know, kind of dark and disturbing way, which, which, again, I guess, is, is, is different from that performance is so different from a realist performance, right? Because she's not convincing inside the fiction; she's convincing in, you know, the actuality of the performance, right? What's right. Convi- she's convincing outside of the fiction, right? And that, uh, you know, I, I think that that also relates to what we're saying in Man the Earth, right, is that there's some kind of, uh, there's a non-realist, um, how to put this? There's like a non-realist authenticity there <laughs> because we're so
0: aware of the performance as performance. Um, yeah, no, no, yeah. no, that's totally true. And, and especially with Selena, like, again, so much, if you are a fan of hers, you know that there was so much else going on. Again, not necessarily even with regards to the conspiracy, but just literally like she would sort of, her body changed a lot. And and that's something that's not necessarily represented in the film, but what you do get is a very satisfying, you know, as you were alluding to before, sort of like a Selena drag. Like it is like, and it's like, and you do get to sort of like relive this concert footage of her, you know, in her like jumpsuits and all this stuff. And like, it's, it's great. It is totally satisfying in that way. But then also it's just sort of, again, reminding you of what we've all lost. And it is interesting that like, After this, Jennifer Lopez would go on to have her own musical career where she was her totally her own thing and totally not what Selena was trying to do at all. Assuming that Selena would have even continued in music, let's say.
2: Right. But there is this kind of, you know, passing of the torch, Mm -hmm. right, of Mm -hmm. the Latina pop star that happens
0: inside that film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's to say she would have broken through? I think Selena
1: would have broken through because there was money behind making it happen. That's always what makes it happen. Jennifer Lopez didn't break through because she's a great singer.
0: No, I know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Like
1: that was – we we were made to love Jennifer Lopez as a singer. Even yes. Well. We didn't really have an opportunity to decide whether or not we
2: – Fair enough. But, I mean, what is what is, I think, moving about that movie is that she mm. is – so charismatic. Oh, yeah, no, right? no, no. She totally And is. right, and, and totally, so her, yeah. you know, her and it and and part of again, part of that charisma is about her being unstudied. Right. Right. So part right. of that charisma actually is about, you know, not necessarily being the best singer, right? Not having right. the best ring. You know, not she's right. not Whitney Houston. Right. But but that she's was not she... the professional,
0: right? No, she's but she, the... she
1: followed the Madonna mold, basically. Mm. Somebody I don't have the greatest voice in the world, but I have great producers and I'm gonna make really but, great. But
0: but songs. but to be fair, Selena kind of did the same thing. Uh-huh. And then I mean there's a scene in the movie where her father is like, you know, you speak Spanish kind of funny. Like, yes, and yes. you can hear it in her song. She sings with a Texican accent, you know? And, she, I mean, J-Lo does too, and right? And she does. J. Lo she does imitates not, that. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. But yes, JLo in
2: her own career does not speak Spanish. Well, I mean, she speaks Spanish with a New York accent.
0: Right, right, yeah. right. So it's like this, um, again, it's... it's um, selena herself was sort of like she was a long shot she was always she was always a long shot it's like there's no way that this is ever going to happen you need to temper your expectations and then she exceeds them tejano music is hard man <laughs> that is what the film is about it actually is. <laughs> it is it is hard yeah. but eric please what is your next
1: pick oh um i, I guess i'm, I'm just because this is all making me think of other things i'm i'm, I, I'm unplanned i guess going to talk a little bit about Barbara Streisand. Yeah. um, Who I think is probably of all of the singers who've become film figures probably has the most robust career of all. It's kind of hard Mm -hmm. to imagine otherwise considering she's directed so many films. She starred in so many films. And I I think she's a fascinating film person because she's kind of willed herself into this career, just like she's somebody who willed herself into her singing career at the the young age. Um, You know, that, that, her young career as a singer, as a performer, was very theatrical. So it was not the hugest shock that like that, you know, sort of song and dance tradition she was coming from would lead itself into musicals in Hollywood, like Hello Dolly and and Funny Girl. But like, I just recently watched Funny Lady, sort of mostly forgotten sequel <laughs> oh, to no! Funny Girl, which I've programmed in the Cannes Film Festival, the James yeah. Cannes Film Festival. At the museum um, because it co-stars James Caan. And there's something about this film that I'm – I just I, – I'm so interested in this film because uh, it is just – it's 75. It's just – it's six years after Funny Girl and it's the continuation of Fanny Brice, another like actual singer um, being played by a young singer around the same ages the six years from funny girl to funny lady are six years during which Barbara Streisand has become a absolutely colossal star. She's Mm -hmm. gone through several different derivations. She's married Elliot Gould. She's, Mm -hmm. you know, um, she's made a country album. She's made, you know, uh, absolutely, you know, I, you know, huge, huge hits and kind of then does this sequel that kind of puts it all, that puts it all at risk, but it's, it's a ton of money. it's you know it was it was a it, there was there was a lot there's a push behind it, and then it is a film that's deeply intentionally unsatisfying because it has big numbers, she gets to sing, she gets to hoof it. but there's you know it's about like a her learning to no longer be in love with Omar Sharif, <laughs> who's the sort of dashing gambler um and instead kind of has a realist a realistic you know reasonable relationship with singer songwriter. Played by James Kahn who's on the upswing, and she's kind of at a plateau, and he kind of picks her up, and she has a second wind to her career. But mm. it's never clear within the plot whether or not they are in love, or even when they decide to be partners, or when they're just working people. Um, and it just feels weirdly unsatisfying. And the music is all about things within that space, so it's not like these rousing anthems. And it winds up being a film about, like, the disappointments of adulthood and divorce and and when you decide that you are your own woman rather than somebody who's somebody's partner. Like, things that are kind of amazing 70s narratives but not the sort of things that you, you know, uh, build a career in your late 20s, early 30s on. So I'm just fascinated by – not that she survived this because obviously she definitely survived it and made – you know, Yentl was to come. Um, but... Uh,
0: <laughs> the triumph of Yentl. But,
1: but her, you know, her as a, in, in some ways I think it's actually her really settling into a screen persona mm-hmm. or a, a screen mm-hmm. actor. Because it, again, it's not, though it is a singer, a song and dance film, it is not the sort of script mm-hmm. that says, oh, great, now, now we're going to sell, sell a, a ton of records based on this. Right. It's really. actually kind of a a character that is... A bit defeated by life so i'm just really fascinated she, by that turn in her yeah. career
0: how does she play it i mean does she is it again well,
1: what's, what's fun about it is like she's she gets to be really like New York, you know, like mm. she and James Kahn get to be like New York Jews, mm. which they don't get a chance to be very often in film. It's true. You know, so they're kind of heavily accented and it's the thirties mm-hmm. and it's, and you know, it's the thirties, but it's the seventies, the way a lot of films like that are in a really fascinating right. way. Right. It's the thirties, but there's zooms, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, And so, yeah, so she plays it clever. I think she's actually, it's a good vocal performance because she's, she's good at line readings. She's funny. She, there's, the, there's a, there's acid in her, in her voice. Um, she's playing a little bit older than she actually is. And I think she pulls mm. it off probably because she was older than she actually was by then. She'd already been a, a you know, a, a performer for over a decade. Um, so yeah, I don't know.
2: It's interesting. I mean, it's I'm, an I'm imperfect thinking...
1: film, but a fascinating one. Yeah.
2: yeah I'm, thi- I'm, I mean, this is, I wonder if we can test this proposition. <laughs> um, it, it seems like okay so so being a musical performer who has had a career before um, going into film or concurrently with rising in in the world of film it is a way for people who look weird to become movie stars, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that is that seems like yeah. that is actually a theme here, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and maybe you know, maybe Judy Garland is one of the is one of us is a progenitor of this phenomenon, right? But but if you have the the charisma you need to have again to be a, a star um, as a musician, and you know the ability to perform that you need to have, but you don't have you know the face of a movie star, yeah. um, you know that. I guess you're allowed to be in movies in a way that people aren't <laughs> otherwise right. who don't you've have Because you've got, the same, you got right? something else. You've you're got something else going. Face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, it's – I guess thinking about Tom Waits is, is yeah, yeah. you know, an, another example. Although men have it a little easier in that regard. But, but obviously Strysand is, is an interesting one.
1: That's a really, really interesting point. And I was thinking about that watching this film again. I obviously watched her in many films. She's got an amazing face. She's yeah, got an amazing yeah, yeah. look. But you're right, if she was just making her way as a young actress, no she way. wouldn't necessarily be the right. choice. I
2: mean I mean for you know, first of all, because she's just too ethnic looking, right? right? I mean right. it's just obvious. And I guess too ethnic is another way that musical performers are allowed to be ethnic in a way that movie stars generally really aren't. Very true. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I guess you know share maybe is another person we should talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> although I Cher. mean, you know, maybe less unusual looking of a face, but still an a very you know yeah. um, you know clearly uh, ethnic although ambiguously ethnic look, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and you know she she becomes a star you know, through Moonstrack in a way that...
1: Well, even before then. Even before yeah. then, but, but she's a fascinating one because her second life was as a yeah. movie star. Yeah, like she, mm-hmm. her first life was as a... You know, she was... Yeah, she was on TV. She, everybody knew her look. They yeah. knew she was a... She was a singer. Yeah. And so the second life yeah. being about movies. Yeah. And then, like, the... Second life to the record career is because of the second life of movies. It's so interesting. It's so
2: interesting. And I wonder, you know, just getting back to this thing you brought up about the voice and the American Mm. voice, right? There's something about the American voice and ethnicity, too, right? Uh, That's really mm -hmm. interesting. Like, Uh. how do we hear, you know, how do we hear the ethnic voice? Um, And, you know, I I said earlier, I want to, like, revise what I said earlier about it being traceable to this mid-century moment. Because, of course, you know, the idea of the unstudied, authentically American voice goes back much earlier, mm-hmm. right, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, I mean, I guess we now know it from, like, Alan Lomax recordings, right, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, you know, the American folk culture and the voice, you know, has a very long history and, you know, the way that the American voice was um, in some cases self-consciously and in some cases not, articulated against the refined European voice mm-hmm. is actually like a, that's, that's a sort of, you could trace that Back to the early 19th century, right? And and how American self conception was um, relating itself to vocal performance in particular. Mm. Mm. So that's a, yeah, a, yeah. that's a rabbit hole, I'm, you know, a really interesting one.
1: Well, I mean, it's, I, mean I think about mid century too, though, when I start I'm thinking about Streisand and how, you know, I, I wrote this piece years ago uh, about that kind of New York Jewish group, uh, Streisand and Neil Diamond, Bette Midler, that came up during the sort of time of. Of they were, they, it was parallel to the rise. Like their rise was happening while their tradition was dying. In a sense, mm-hmm. that sort of sense of range as a musician—that you know, every record is going to be different, every right. song I'm going to interpret a different type of—and like that was what was venerated. They were coming from like an earlier century sense of, yeah, I can do it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like there was this rise of like this authentic, like what is the authentic American? What's the authentic blues? What's authentic country? Mm-hmm. You know, rock comes and punk come from this sort of authentic, you know, carnal primal place. And they were like trying to forge a path of, the stuff that their grandparents would have appreciated. Exactly. Um, but yeah. that's why it's fascinating that them as the ways in which they became performers because it, it showed that there was – not only did they retain – have successful careers, but there was still a place. And, in fact, maybe there was even more of a need for in Hollywood for what they were doing. Oh,
2: super interesting. You that's know, really rather interesting. Rather than right. being
1: the method tradition, they were like, oh, we still need color. We still need – Characters. We need ethnicity. Whatever whatever it is, but it's
2: filtered through the method tradition, right? Because that was so much about ethnic performers, you know, being led into an American realism, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And so it's really, you know, I love what you just said because the idea that they were able to maintain a flexibility in their musical careers in part because they performed authenticity in their film careers of a certain okay. kind, like, you know, ethnic authenticity. Mm. Um, that's just a fascinating line of thought. As an
1: origin, I see that's right. But I would say that Streisand is somebody who was knew about that and yeah, basically was yeah. working hard to work, against, to work that. against that. Like she wanted to establish range very early you know and so she didn't want to be pigeonholed as like sort of yeah that ethnic Jewish character like she spent decades trying to work against that in, right.
2: as, a, as a musical performer no as right? an actor as an actor, actor. okay yeah, but but totally. you know but for so many people she will always be Yentl right oh, of course. I mean that's so and that's that really was in, important but right? that's like the early 80s right and yeah, she I had think, 15
1: years of like all kinds of stuff before yeah, that
2: yeah yeah And I and don't I, know that she's ever not Jewish though really I mean I think Barbra Streisand is always Jewish no matter what she's doing
1: she would hate to hear that because uh, like right. you right. know I mean, <laughs> but I'm saying but my my point is, her yeah. choices have definitely been okay. doing whatever she could to like she wants to be a chameleon,
0: right? And and I think, and I
1: think she and both as a musician, musician and as an actor, yeah,
0: yeah. And yeah. I think the period yeah. that you're talking about in Hollywood, Eric, is really they. I think there was a hesitancy to cast people who looked ethnic in certain roles because it would have been seen as like derogatory in some mm. way, where it's just like, mm. oh yeah, of course she looks Jewish. We've sort of come to a point now where there isn't that perception. Like I, I, you know, mm. even thinking about like um, in Tommy, the fact that they had actually people who are actually disabled play yeah. disabled people. People saw that not as representation, but as making fun of them. Right. We have to, again, sort of like considering like the way in which public or at least the people who make films and the people who receive them change sort of change um, what is authentic, what is respectful, what is not respectful.
1: Yeah. Speaking of Tommy, Roger Deltry terrible in time. He
0: is. He's a bad, he's not good. And he's also, and he's even worse. Singing in- his
1: own music, singing his own songs. He's still terrible. <laughs> anyway, you say what?
0: Yeah. Uh, and he's even worse in, um, the, the, the one about Chopin.
1: Oh my God. Yeah.
0: That's unwatchable. One
1: is unwatchable. Whereas, where just briefly touch on it because I will not forgive myself oh if my God, I don't get you into have it. Dark. But Neil Diamond, the jazz singer, mm-hmm. who, like you know, after all these years of of yeah. his of of his you know New York pal Barbara Streisand making her way, and after "You Don't Bring Me Flowers," their duet, he finally makes his movie yes. as a remake of the legendary the jazz singer, right. mm-hmm. which is not a good movie, no, but I love it so much. <laughs> um, and part of why I love it actually is to. <laughs> Shani, your your way that you're sort of talking in and out of authenticity, which is so interesting, is how authentically awkward he is Mm -hmm. in that movie. Mm -hmm. And also Mm -hmm. how amazingly Jewish the whole film Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Um, That he's kind of like – so this this sense of him being the rebel, rebelling against his rabbi father when, like, there's nothing rebellious seeming about (laughs) Neil Diamond at all. He's just such a good Jewish boy. Right. And – so the fact that he is a rebel is laughable in so many ways especially when he goes into the west and grows a half like a a one-week-old beard and like (laughs) sings in saloons and nobody buys it for a second Mm -hmm. um but it's actually quite touching yeah because it's like this imagination of like what it would be like for somebody like that to be a rebel what it would take for any old diamond to be a rebel and so like it actually makes no matter how you feel about the movie throughout when you get to the end and he sings America about, you know, which (laughs) it is a, a, a rousing song of immigration. Um, it feels like something Mm -hmm, because like mm -hmm. within the range, Mm -hmm. the very limited range of who Mm -hmm. Neil Diamond is both as a singer and as a movie star, (laughs) there is a sense of flowering that gets there, even though you've, yeah, you've had to like just rattle around in the sort of like the very little space available Mm -hmm. that he's given you.
2: Well, there's always something exciting about, I think, about watching people's fantasies. Like like uh, watch, watching artists work, obviously work through their fantasies, you know, on screen. Like yeah, I think it's really like there's something really, just something exciting about that. And in part because it,
0: the transparency of it can be both galling and mm-hmm. immensely appealing. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, it gets back to that, the question of authenticity where it's like in order to show up on time to a movie set and perform these things, you have to be incredibly disciplined to be a slob or to be a klutz or to be whatever. Like it it is, it is like that for song. That's so interesting.
1: I I have a question though. It's coming from acting as you have, is there resentment toward musicians who are in films (laughs) or on stage or anything like that? Or is there acceptance? Like it just would seem to be tension. And I always think of this, Mm. um,
2: I can't speak for the acting No, community. I know,
1: but, but I just no, actually no, 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 don't.
0: No. answer for all actors right now. Yes I or just, no? i not even an
1: actor. I just, I just never heard, I don't know that I've ever encountered yeah, 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 real yeah. thought on that, and I just don't know if there's, like, because well, like, I think I'm also thinking about how uh, Patty Lepone recently, like, laying to waste Uma Thurman as a stage actor, yeah. saying like these Hollywood yeah. people don't know how to act,
0: right. that kind of thing, right. and that
1: tension I've always thought of right. that must exist. And then there she is; she said it. Right. and I wonder if there's something similar. Well, in the terms movie of
0: Birdman is about that tension,
1: <laughs> <do you> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that imaginary not maybe sort of their tension, but and <laughs> fantasy, and, and um, fantasies and yeah. fantasies again. Yes, I mean, I guess, I guess
2: what I would, I would, I would. Hunt on that one, I, I would just say that there is, I think, a long-standing tension in American acting tradition between those actors who see their um, work very clearly as a profession, mm-hmm. right, um, with uh, craft and and skill and understand it in in those terms, and those who see acting as something other than a profession. Mm. You know, I mean I personally am, am really interested actually in sort of anti professional acting because it that doesn't always mean that people um, you know, are just taking the piss, right? Like mm-hmm. I think that I mean, obviously there's a there's a tradition of thinking about, you know, amateurs and in film, mm-hmm. but but, mm-hmm. but you could also say that, you know, there's interesting line of kind of deliberately or not quote unquote, bad acting or, Mm -hmm. you know, what I guess I would rather call like unstudied acting that, you know, that I that I think is, you know, can not only do really interesting things to a film, but I think is actually also crucial for understanding acting not just as, um, you know, a, sort of a professionalized skilled labor, but as an art form, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's if it's going to be an art, right, you have to allow the possibility for the least studied gesture to be the most exciting, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you don't look at work by Marcel Duchamp and say like, yeah, but can he draw, you know, right, like, so right, there has right. to be, you know, there has to be room for a, a provocative like intervention that goes against a kind of a, a, a professional discourse mm-hmm. of, of, skill. Yeah. So, but, but sorry, yeah, yeah. that was all I no, to great. say that I think that, I think that there, that's, that, that tension has always been there. It was a big part of the, the fights around the method. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the ways that, 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 form actually professionalized a, a, a version of this unstudiedness. Right, um right. uh yeah it's a, it's a complicated and, history.
1: And and there but I guess it's, it's why I'm always always interested in who stuck it out and continued to perform yeah. among the musicians and films because that becomes a de facto whether or not they're embracing it or not professionalization mm-hmm. of that which mm-hmm. parallels right, in a sense that right. professionalization of right. of the method. And so yeah, and like once you're in once you do it a second time or a third time, right. like mm-hmm. it's not quite the same thing right. as like you've you may not be studying it, but it's studied it in the sense that you've done it before.
2: Right. that's the interesting thing about Mark Kozilek, right? Is that he mm. keeps doing it. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think I think that you can relate that maybe an anxiety around um, the increasing visibility of his persona as a performance that led to like his current crazy outbursts and also like (laughs) this kind of need to, you know, provoke that characterizes well, his talk- current
0: moment. Yeah. So talk about Mark Kozilek yeah.
2: for those, for those who maybe oh, not okay. super familiar. Okay. You know. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Mark Kozilek, beloved and reviled, um, <laughs> indie singer songwriter who started, uh, or first became known in the nineties as the frontman to a fantastic band called Red House Painters, which mm-hmm. was sort of an, uh, you could, I guess you could say it's like an early slow core band kind of, mm-hmm. um, from San Francisco. Uh, And they had a uh, a serious cult following that led to Mark Kozlik's casting in Almost Famous, Mm -hmm. where he plays uh, a member of the band, um, the Almost Famous band, and where, you know, he doesn't really have much to do except, like, look good which he does he actually has like a very pretty face like he, lo- he looks good um and you know at one he has to like be sort of morose and cool um which he does he does well and then he starts getting cast in other films including vanilla sky and shop girl mm-hmm. and youth um and i think he's done a few more and often you know he's cast as a well he's he's except for in vanilla sky where he just has this weird cameo but but he's cast as a um as as a version of himself. Right, Mm -hmm. as this brooding, handsome singer-songwriter guy. So, okay, so so after Red House Painters, Mark Kozlick, I'm actually a huge Mark Kozlick fan. Sure. <laughs> although in case you could tell, um, uh, He He uh, goes off on his own, starts his own record label, and starts singing under the name Sun, Kill Moon. He also releases some albums under his own name, uh, Mark Kozlick. Um, and very recently, he's actually um, become really famous for being a total asshole um, mm-hmm. because of a variety of things, including this super juvenile feud he got into Uh, with the war on drugs, the band, the war on drugs um, that led to this really embarrassing, you know, teenage provocation where he released a, a a song with a, with a vulgar title that I will not deign to say (gasps) on the film comment podcast. (laughs) Um, No, it's actually so embarrassing that this guy did this um, because he had this, his whole persona was, uh, you know, as actually a, you know, kind of, uh, you know, within, within a tradition of um, male American singer songwriters, misogynist, but also sensitive. Right. So Mm -hmm. like, like he had this whole like kind of this whole confessional, uh, sensitive, depressed persona. And then it turns out you know that not only is he you know an immature, jerk. Um, he also, you know, is a serial harasser of journalists, female journalists. Oh, but a, he's so embarrassed about it. <laughs> he's, oh. right. But he's just, I mean, he's a huge jerk, right, it turns yes, out, which is course, like, no yeah. one should have been surprised. Everyone um, <laughs> knows the sensitive misogynist. Everyone right. knows. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. But I think that, right, that, that part of what happens as he becomes more of a professional actor is that his persona just starts to look more and more like, oh, this is clearly a role he's playing. Um, you know, his his music was always about sort of bearing his soul or, or you know about this kind of confessional gesture that he can't really pull off anymore and so I think if I were gonna you know read this narrative that's kind of why he's gone off the deep end um, and uh, is is you know doing this mm. this embarrassing stuff
0: hmm. interesting and I guess when he <laughs> that's so embarrassing that's amazing that's very good it's an
1: audio bio right there <laughs> eh? <Yeah. laughs> I feel like we have to mention one thing, which we haven't talked about. We haven't talked about rap, and rap uh, stars. Yeah. which is a whole. We don't. We can't get into yeah. all of it, but yeah. I I want to bring it up yeah. because I think it fits entirely with where we began the conversation. Mm-hmm. This notion of role play and character as a as a singer, but also the sense of authenticity as being what's being performed. And I think that's kind of why so many rappers have been cast in so many things for the last 30 years or so is that's why i think it seems like that's what casting directors or directors are looking for this sort of sense of this person's playing a character who may or may not be himself but he's also authentic and so mm-hmm. therefore he'll work in this space because he can give some authenticity to whatever environment we're looking for this character to play in. so which i find really interesting
0: yes and which is why belly is infinitely rewatchable film because it is beautiful and powered by just some of the finest late 90s rappers you can imagine we got nas we got dmx we got and then they're watching gummo it's really good (laughs) check it out if you haven't seen it belly i I almost talked about that for this but instead i decided to give some Props to Diana Ross because, you know, she just hasn't been awarded enough, I don't think. (laughs) Um, She was nominated for an Oscar for Lady Sings the Blues. But my personal favorite performance of hers is in Mahogany, which is, um, you know, she's going to night school. She's, you know, she wants to become a fashion designer. And instead, she gets whisked away to Rome by Norman Bates himself to become a... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a model um and uh she makes fun of the fact that she doesn't have very big boobs and and the thing about Diana Ross is that it's it's so strange because she has a very kind of high reedy voice that would seem not well suited to Motown or soul music and yet that's where she you know she got her start and made her a superstar and in this film there are times where she has to give like a sharp look to somebody or tell someone off because i'm mahogany and uh she 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 does it but there's still like this beautiful softness and like femininity to what she does and i um she designed all the clothes for this so it's uh good to see obviously i didn't know that oh my god you didn't this it says in the opening credits all you know outfits designed by Miss Ross. Um that's so but, amazing. Yeah, but I mean she did like the weird like um orientalist costumes. Not like the good, not the good like the 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 costumes that are clearly made by somebody who thinks fashion is like bright colors and not actually like oh this is a well-designed garment. This is just like I like these colors. I'm going to put them all together. The movie is so strange. And it, it, the ending, because her romantic interest in this besides um, it, it, her romantic interest in this is Billy D. Williams, who is like this very earnest politician trying to come up in Chicago, who's sort of like, again, this is a very interesting time and it's actually shot in Chicago where you see like neighborhoods being cleared out all these beautiful old buildings being destroyed and putting in projects instead and he's this very earnest politician who wants to change the world one block at a time and he perceives her interest in fashion as this very frivolous thing and in the end she goes back to him and you can either see that as like she's giving up her dreams for a man or that she's choosing something genuine over something sort of flashy and fake. The film does not make a very convincing argument for her actually choosing something of substance. But throughout in the film, there are lots of moments where she like plays a role within the role where she like prompts him to have like these great political moments to be the political hero. And those are so great. And um, you can see why her daughter, Tracy Ellis Ross... Went on to be such a star. She's a star.
1: I have a question. Who are the actors, musicians, who are not lead singers?
0: Ooh. How many
1: of them are there? There's not a lot. Mm. I mean, John Laurie, I was thinking of because he's a saxophonist, but like, right. I just don't know how many there are that mm. are not actually singers or, or even leaders of a band. Mm. I don't know. To stump us on the air, <laughs> but I find it fascinating. It's, on, just, it's mean, just
0: five minutes of us dead, yeah. dead quiet, <laughs> thinking. <laughs> there's
2: no internet down here. here. Otherwise, we could just Google. Would it. Would Phil Collins
1: have ever made Buster if he no. hadn't become a lead singer after being a drummer? That's could he have true. gone from drummer ah, to Buster? Probably not. He needed to he, become a lead singer first.
2: I mean, lest we forget, right? There's the whole other genre of like band movie, of yeah, course. right, which yeah. we sure. haven't talked about, all. which features people like, you know, Ringo Starr, who we would not call... (laughs) <laughs> no, he he's the, he was the
0: best actor out of it. Yes, Beatles. exactly. He was the best actor yeah. I know. No, yes. I know. He's he probably the, the only not a lead one. singer. That's a good point. <laughs> no, good point. Yeah. Ringo's good. I, I, I knew he was a drummer. And John, yes. is, John <laughs> yeah, is pretty
1: terrible in those movies. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. John's yeah. so sort of unacceptable. Really bad. I mean, so that's <laughs> oh, a awesome. no, Ringo's
1: good. <laughs> Ringo's, Ringo's good. Ringo's
2: thoroughly. kind of good. I mean,
1: The old the old man is the best in Hard Days Night. he's
2: the exception that proves the rule, right? I mean, because Ringo's good because he's bad, right? Because he because he's just Ringo. He's happy to be there. He's happy to be there, right? Just kind of enjoying it along for the ride, right? Like not interested really in skill at all. (laughs) You know, by any stretch of the imagination. It's true.
0: That's true. But we should actually probably end it here. All right. But before we do, it would be great with, if we could each go around and say a film that we've seen recently that we liked. I saw at the Museum of the Moving Image this wonderful live performance of... The inferno and Scene, which was just giving me what I wanted to see. Henry George Gluzo's uh, unfinished film. There is a documentary about it uh, that I saw several years ago, probably like ten years ago now. I remember watching the documentary and wishing that it wasn't just these talking heads saying how the director went crazy and failed to make this movie. I what I really wanted to see was the footage of the film because it's unbelievably beautiful. It's it's reducing cinema to its most basic element. And there's even a part in the live performance where Serge Bromberg says that, you know, it reduced cinema to what it is, where it's an actor looking at the camera, waiting for the director to tell them something. And you get this sense because it is, uh, Clouseau, it's supposed to be, you know, like this very basic story about a guy who's like jealous about his wife, cheating on him. It's unclear if she actually did cheat on him or not. And he's sort of like tortured by these visions of her. And Clouseau got increasingly more obsessed with nailing how these visions look. And so it sort of starts off with maybe a little chiaroscuro lighting and then it gets bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger. And then f- you keep thinking it's going to reach its peak and it never reaches a peak. It just gets more and more absurd. And probably one of my favorite images that I got to see thanks to, uh, live event was that beautiful Romy Schneider dressed in a wedding gown, but wrapped up in plastic that would you would use on like a bouquet of flowers, and then her husband hands emerging out of the dark and choking her to death. Like it's so crazy, and that's not even the that's not even the most crazy thing in that movie. <laughs> it gets like geometric. You know, it had fantastic music by Rollo Smallcombe uh, and more. <laughs>
1: And uh, I was just going to give a plug to the fact that it was edited, constructed by Rolo, the musician, and Marketa Uliarova, yes. uh, who's actually the organizer of that festival, the fashion and film festival at the museum. Yeah. Um, and then as far as I know, it's actually not – I don't know when it could be seen again. It's actually not available online, and I don't know if their plans are, are to – I thought they were
0: going to do it with For
1: reasons. Well, Mubi helped finance it, but yeah. I don't think they're putting it online for maybe – complicated reasons that i don't know that i can get into ah
0: that's too bad well i loved it
1: (laughs) screw you listener (laughs) well maybe maybe listeners can can could 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 go petition their local movie
0: they should and they should if you ever get mad that you didn't get to see something that we're talking about go tell your theater about it
1: Sheesh. I like your local movie. I was proud of that. Um, so <laughs> um, imagine, imagine it was like that. Streaming services were just like post offices. You just go complain about service. You ask for certain movies. Yes. Um, I will talk about a film that I saw at CPH Docs, the documentary festival in Copenhagen. It was my first time going and I always wanted to go. It was really incredibly diverse, massive lineup of, of films and pretty loose sense of... of what constitutes nonfiction, which is always something I love. And uh, instead of going to the award ceremony, which I didn't really have any ownership of, of of in any way. So I skipped that to see a film I was dying to see. And I'm glad I did, which is infinite football. Yeah. Um, uh, Cornelio Poromboyo's film, which I, will be an art of the real mm-hmm. soon here yes. at, uh, at film society. And uh, I will definitely be seeing it again. Um, it's one of the most delightful things I've seen in a long time. I, I want to take some credit for Cornelio Poromboyu on screen <laughs> being lovely and hilarious because for the reverse shot talkies years ago, we got him on screen to do an interview about police adjective and it was, he and I were very awkward together, mm, yeah. um, but he was very polite and was very game to do whatever we wanted to do on camera okay. and then I see him all years these years later and he's one of the he's an incredible presence on camera and the, very very briefly uh, which is not even going to begin to describe what the film is um, it's basically you meet a gentleman who tells some personal anecdotes about soccer in his youth and then proceeds to uh, that leads to him wanting to reinvent the rules of soccer and <laughs> having these very involved very well thought- out, maybe very flawed um ideas of how to fix soccer a uh, mm. sport that i know kind of nobody ever talks about being broken um <laughs> and uh and he does that in several different locations and we get into his where he works where he has a government position and we get deeper and deeper into like who is this man how does horrible you know him where are these theories coming from? And they wind up tangentially glancing against politics and history in Romania and life and death. And it it's wonderful. It's like, you know, you think you're watching one thing and you're almost afraid that that's what you're, it is. You're going to watch and then it becomes something entirely different while still being the same thread, the same people having a conversation not even it's futile to even describe it's just it's a it's a it's a wonderful wonderful film it's hilarious it's profound it's philosophical yeah it's probably the most entertaining film about existentialism you can think of Anyway.
2: Well, I think I'm going to talk about a film that I watched for an article that I wrote for Film Comment, which will be coming out soon, um, about melodrama mm. and the maternal melodrama in particular, which was sort of inspired by uh, the Film Society's recent um, series, Emotion Pictures, International Melodrama. So I watched a film that I had never seen before, although I know that it is very famous called In Shang by Lino Bracca yes. um, from 1976, which I thought was a film fascinating case study in the intense frission that you can get frission no the sparks that can fly oh, yes, when yes, yes. Um, <laughs> when uh, filmmakers rather than walk the line between melodrama and realism actually superimpose them on one another i think mm-hmm. that's a much more interesting um thing to do with the the two genres um and this film does it in really uh really compelling ways
0: Ooh. Thank you both for coming. This was delightful. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Ripold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommentcom slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app. Available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcommentcom slash app.